0: Good morning, everyone. We will give maybe just one more minute to let everyone get logged into the Zoom and we will get started. So it's about 10.01. Thank you all for joining us this morning for this episode of the Burr Morning Show. My name is Nafal Helu. I am a Labor and Employment Associate with Burr in our Atlanta office. Um, I've been with Burr for quite some time now and had the pleasure of hosting a few of these, um, and I'm excited to talk with you guys this morning about employee handbooks, um, areas that are ripe for litigation, and things we can do to help prevent that I also have with me today, John uh, Gumble. He is a partner in the Labor and Employment Group here in the Atlanta office as well. I'll let him introduce himself. Um, and then I will walk us through what we are gonna be talking about today.
1: Good morning, everybody, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being with us. Um, we, we addressed this topic a few years ago. We think it's an important topic because the landscape of litigation is changing and we think making your handbook is more important. Uh, and we thought this was a really good time to sort of address the hot uh, issues in that area. So we appreciate coming.
0: Perfect. So a few housekeeping before we get started. Um, we welcome all questions. If you guys, as we proceed through the presentation, if you all have questions, feel free to pop those in the chat. Uh, we will monitor those and um, have reserved some time at the end for Q&A where we can hopefully address all of those questions um, and any other things that may come up during that process. So a brief summary of today's presentations. I'm going to start out talking a little bit about the employment at will doctrine, how that impacts employee handbooks and some common misperceptions um, that may play out and result in litigation or other problems for employers. We'll discuss the handbook and the policies that are in them that have the most significant impact on litigation and exposure. We'll wrap up our presentation with our discussion of the more obscure handbook policies um, and their impact on litigation. And then lastly, as I mentioned, we will have that time for questions and answers. So I'm going to jump on into the employment at will doctrine. Generally, as a general rule of thumb, the law, especially in Georgia, says that if the employment relationship provides for wages that are payable in a certain interval, for example, biweekly, then it's presumed that the employment is for that period, unless there's something in the contract that says that employment is longer than that. However, obviously, indefinite hirings can be terminated at will by either party, and that's generally kind of the law when it comes to what at will is put into the books in our state. Georgia and Florida, talking about our footprint, are purely at-will states. Alabama and South Carolina are close to pure at-will states, but they do recognize some public policy exceptions such as whistleblower, um, you know, retaliation and bans on workers' compensation, retaliation. Um, Over the years, the courts have kind of taken Uh, certain exemptions and carved them out of the at-will presumption. What we're seeing are the three major areas. We're seeing law exemptions to public policy, like what I talked about with Alabama and South Carolina. We're seeing courts state that there are implied contracts, and we're seeing courts state that there are implied covenants of good faith. And that is kind of where we're seeing the most litigation arise, even in the at-will employment context. So what's happening there, essentially? The at-will employment doctrine is kind of causing the idea that you know we can terminate our employees for any reason at all, as long as it's not an illegal reason. And it's creating a common misperception that employers feel that they can't be sued for wrongful or unfair discharge because handbooks and other policies aren't really controlling. A lot of employers are under the misperception perception that you know because our policies say at the very beginning of every single handbook we say this is not a binding contract um that it's not a contract and that is not how things are playing out currently in a lot of courtrooms the handbook acknowledgement they'll people uh, a lot of employers feel they're safe because the handbook acknowledgement will state that the policies are subject to amendment at any time All, all the handbooks will say you know this is the employer's policy we're free to change this at any time um Whenever we want at our discretion. And then lastly, it's creating the misperception that the progressive discipline policy also says that employers get to skip the warnings if they want, um, if they see fit. We're starting to see cases that that's not necessarily the case. Um, One current or one example of that case, we have um, a Texas Roadhouse case that came out of Texas. Which is a pretty pro employer jurisdiction. And we had an assistant manager who was receiving a lot of complaints about the manager of the restaurant. The assistant manager um, went forth with those complaints, essentially, you know, lodged them and uh, added some of her own. They did an investigation, Texas Roadhouse did an investigation and said in this particular case that they thought that she had made up some complaints and terminated her for fraudulent, you know, complaints. The court essentially said, you know, she sued and the court said, well, it's fine, but you guys didn't follow your policies. So because they didn't follow their policies to the T, the court actually found for the former employee. Uh, so then we're starting to see things like that where we really need to make sure that we're not kind of overdrafting and causing issues, but John will get into more of that. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of people think that at will means that they can fire anyone for any reason at all, so long as it's not any legal reason, but what we're seeing is um, a lot of at will exceptions. So you guys know kind of the big ones, we've got title seven, which protects race, religion, gender, national origin, um, pregnancy, transgender, all of those ADA, FMLA, section 1981. Most states have workers' compensation retaliation. We're seeing OSHA, ERISA, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there's a lot of things that an employee could potentially use you know, to challenge the decisions that we make regardless of the at-will doctrine. So what does this at-will doctrine really mean? how does it play into our employee handbooks? Overall, your at-will employment still doesn't make your handbook policies enforceable contracts overall. But what we're seeing and why we're here today and the bulk of what we're gonna present on is that fact that they are now being highly and closely scrutinized by almost all courts and juries um, in all discrimination, retaliation, ADA, FMLA, and other employment litigation matters. Uh, as we all know, courts and juries are getting, you know, harder to predict and, um, we're really kind of seeing a change, um, in how these policies and all are being, um, scrutinized. Non-existent, outdated, misapplied policies can make or break our defenses to the employment litigation claims that we're seeing. As I mentioned in the Texas Roadhouse case, um, you know, they, found that she had lodged a fraudulent complaint against the manager. At least her part was the company's findings. And the court, the jury said, we don't care. You guys didn't give her the process that you had outlined in your policy. And that's where they got in trouble. We're also seeing you know, implications for multi-state employers. Uh, policies and practices are now being impacted by local law to a degree that we hadn't seen in the past. We have a lot of clients who operate nationally or have operations um, in various different states. And we're seeing a growth in policies that would apply to folks. It's mostly who work there, or I mean, who live there, excuse me, but there are some states that are attempting to apply their policies to people who do, you know, a certain threshold of hours, for example, California. Um, There's been a recent increase in not only state, but also local legislation. Um, We're seeing counties, municipalities, and jurisdictions like that implementing certain wage and hour ordinances, paid sick leave ordinances, different employment-related ordinances that will require employers to um, kind of change the way that they do things for employees in that area you know, we're starting to have more and more discussion or we have been having more and more discussions with employers about how we prepare our handbooks in light of the more and more frequent changes to local law. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that later and kind of the options that we have um, in terms of doing, you know, state specific addendas or creating a general handbook that's got a lot of flexibility to it. Um, And that's kind of, you know, the overview if I may, of kind of the at-will employment doctrine and, and some of the issues that have risen um, recently, and then I think John is going to dig in a little bit more into um, how these policies rise and give issues for when it comes to litigation.
1: Thank you, Danfla. Uh I kind of wanted to switch gears and talk about this from a, more of a procedural perspective in the sense of how do how do our policies, our standalone policies and our handbook policies, everything matter? How do they impact litigation? So the first point I wanna make is that good plaintiff's lawyers, and we wanna keep your former employees away from good plaintiff's lawyers. You wanna you wanna send them to the folks who don't do their research for the accept case or don't know what the law is, but a good plaintiff's attorney will dig in pretty deeply before they decide whether to accept a case or not. And, and that includes, you know, they, they could accept or reject your former employee's lawsuit uh, depending on whether their discharge uh, meshes with a policy or not. In other words, they will dig into the handbook policies because we found that most former employees keep their handbooks uh, or or at least somehow have access to them We provide them to their lawyers and their lawyers Decide one way or the other whether to file or not. And, and obviously, it's in your best interest if, if that former employee goes to as many attorneys as possible he'd turn him or her down uh, and maybe they get frustrated. The second level of that is how do judges deal with policies? And this is kind of the, the, the evolving part I think that NAFLA was talking about. Um, judges in every jurisdiction, including Georgia, which is a very pro employer state, and Florida. Uh, will, increasingly will, scrutinize your your policies as a basis for the decision whether to dismiss a lawsuit before it goes to the jury. And those of you who have been involved in a lot of employment litigation know that that is key. The, the, the key to defending an employment lawsuit is to win it at summary judgment before it gets in front of an unpredictable jury, and all juries are unpredictable to some extent. So what we're seeing more and more of is, is the judge is actually relying on our policy, or, or more importantly, the consistent or inconsistent application of those policies to decide whether or not to send that case to the jury. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, even if you take a really hard stance on litigation, you say we will settle under no conditions, that if summary judgment is denied and you're facing trial and the an uncertainty of what a jury will do, uh, there's always more serious discussion of settlement at that point because it, it, it's it's a it's an unpredictable situation. So that's the second level. The first level being, you know, will the will the plaintiff's attorney look at those issues? And the answer is yes. And the second is, will judges look at our policies? And the answer is yes, and increasingly so. Um, the third level is, you know, what do juries do with our policies? How do they look at them? And if we're successful, we, we would have a judge. You know, let's just take an absenteeism policy. We would convince the judge to, at the end of the trial, when all the evidence is in, all the witnesses have been heard, to um, instruct the jury that you know the handbook is not a contract. And so they should not consider the policy contractually binding on the employee. The jury most likely doesn't care about that instruction. So if you have a policy, say an attendance policy, or absentee, an absentee is a policy that you swayed from with a particular group of people or person um, the jury's not gonna care whether it's contractual or not. They're gonna see that as unfair because we drafted the policies, they look at them as contractually binding on the employer. So that's probably the most dangerous area where your policies going to play. And if they're poorly drafted or vague or even vague when it comes to the particular issue at the trial, then we could easily be punished by a jury. Um, so, You know, there's like three categories that we worry about with a jury. That is non-existent policies on employment subjects that the jury thinks should be there. I don't know how we predict that. Um, Vague or unclear policies or misapplied policies, or I should say inconsistently applied policies. So those are the areas that sort of trigger our concerns. Um, and, you know, we run into handbooks all the time that were drafted in, I don't know, 2001 and, you know, put in a desk for and nobody's ever looked at them again. Uh, and I would say, especially if you're a multi-state employer with what NAFL was talking about, all the changes to local and state laws. Uh, and if those are not reviewed and updated, then it could present a problem and oftentimes does. So I've got a few decisions I want to talk about to sort of highlight this. Um, and these are just a few, the few of the many decisions where the court relied on a handbook. The first one is a Florida appellate court where the court reversed the dismissal of a sexual harassment case. And they found that because the employer had three different published versions of its sexual harassment policy, the employee could select the one she liked best. And so... The court said, well, this particular one that she selected you know, supports her claim, so we're going to go with that. We're going to uh, refuse dismissal of that. That was just, I'm not going to say sloppy drafting. It was just you know, employers not paying attention to the fact that they had three, three different policies out there. I was recently in a meeting where a, the company had revised the attendance policy. Um, and, you know, and that's going on a lot, obviously, post-COVID, because we had to relax attendance policies a lot during COVID and the labor period. And we learned during the meeting with supervisors that this is one step further, right? That that although our policy was clear and unambiguous, some supervisors didn't like it, so they just weren't applying it, and most of the supervisors were. So it created this strong feeling of unfair treatment and inequality in the workplace that now we're trying to rectify. Uh, second case is, is a local Atlanta case where the court denied our summary judgment motion, and that's the motion obviously because, uh, on a Fair Labor Standards Act misclassification claim where the employer did not have a written attendance policy and therefore couldn't prove that, they, that the employer had an FLSA required plan or policy of providing compensation For loss of salary. Now, I don't don't know that I've ever seen an employer without some form of attendance policy, but apparently, here we didn't think it was necessary. Um, The Noons versus Walmart case is a Ninth Circuit case. That's California and Washington state, and those states that follow the exact opposite theories of law that Georgia and Florida do. In that case, uh, the court found that the employer's benefit policy, which Afforded unpaid leave for up to one year, belied or contradicted its undue hardship claim with respect for a leave request under the ADA. Now, this is a really key issue. And a lot of employers still have these sort of vague personal leave policies with numbers attached to them. You know, we'll allow you a personal leave up to six months. At the discretion of the company, and those are great benefits for employees. Somebody who's sick, God forbid, has cancer, uh, you know, any number of reasons that they would need that in excess of FMLA. But we have to be really careful with those because those numbers that we put in those policies or that employers do sort of become the law, right? We allow up to six months of leave for personal. Well. We've got an employee who has exhausted their 12 weeks of FMLA. They're arguably disabled um, and they ask for more leave. Well, I've always maintained that the first thing a court's going to look at is our policy and say, wait, you've got this personal leave policy that allows up to six months. You only allow that person an additional two months. So we have to be very careful. In addition to that, the EEOC, if we have a cap that's too low, Say we have a personal leave policy that will allow 30 more days and we follow that, the EEOC sometimes finds those types of policies inherently in violation of the ADA because it provides only 30 more days of leave beyond the FMLA for disabled employees. And the EEOC's uh, mind, that's, that's not enough time if, it, if an employee is truly disabled. So we have to be careful with those policies. My suggestion there would be it's okay to have a personal leave policy as long as we maintain the authority to approve or deny each each request for it. And I would shy away from putting any numerical value in that personal leave policy or any sort of cap on the amount of time because that raises a red flag. The final case is a tenth circuit case, and in this one. Very similar. They found that the employer's policy for providing six months leave with reinstatement rights um, again supported an ADA request for accommodation of that same amount of time. So that just reinforces um, sort of our cautionary statement on those types of policies. All right, some of the key points. And these are sort of big picture. Um, I think it's Fairly say that well thought out and consistently applied policies within our handbook are more crucial than most people think when it comes to the defense of an employment lawsuit. NAFLA talked a lot about the at-will doctrine. All of our handbooks have that language in them that says you can be terminated anytime for any reason, at least in an at-will state like Georgia. Ford. And every handbook that I see has the same language of this is not a contract. It's not a binding contract. And I think sometimes employers sort of rely too much on that language because it, although it states like Georgia or Florida, it is not a binding contract for the most part. It can still negatively impact litigation in the ways we've talked about in the examples that we've shown so far. So, my recommendation would be to. You know, think through every policy. Is it necessary? Is it required by law? Is it going to do us more harm than good? And in that sense, this is, I think, where we come in or or an appointment lawyer comes in is that because we see the ramifications in in litigation every day, that's not as easy for you to see. But we can look at, say, a um, probationary employee policy. And I can think back to a case just a few years ago that we handled where the probationary policy came back to price. I'll I'll tell you why and get into that a little more detail uh, later on. The other important aspect is is to consider the makeup of your organization as it applies to each policy. So this gets very tricky when it comes to multi-state employers. And the question that NAFLA and I always ask ourselves and often ask the client is, well, we're designing a handbook for a multi-state employer with a centralized human resources department, right? You all are the experts. Say say they're in Atlanta. How do we feel about relinquishing the control of the interpretation and application of those policies to our managers, or maybe even a, an entry-level HR person in another office in another state? And the answer is oftentimes we're not really that comfortable with it. And the other thing that all organizations in that situation need to look at is, you know, what are the direct, what, what, when do, what are, what are the events that trigger that local manager or HR professional duty to get back with you know, the, the, the trained higher level HR folks and, or, or do they have a lot of autonomy to make decisions? And when I say all this, I think if we trust that we have a well-trained HR or even non-HR staff who knows the handbook, knows the policies, knows the company, knows how to reach out for help when they need it, then we can get by with a, a more generalized handbook that applies to everybody we'll talk about that in a little bit too. If we're not comfortable with that, then we are, a lot of companies are using their handbook as more of a, a guideline for their distant managers, right? Or even their managers here, um, then we may have to put more detail into it. So it's a, it's a living fluid type of analysis. It's, it's, we gotta think about each policy, whether it's required by law, whether it's necessary, whether it's overkill, We have to think about whether that policy, if not required by law, or not really that relevant to our workplace, whether that provides a plan of security with more ammunition than it provides us with good. And then we have to think about it in the context of our organization and how those policies are going to be viewed, how they're going to be applied by folks other than HR experts, and what are the ramifications of that? Um, I, I think this is safe to say and correct me if I'm wrong, we tend towards being policy minimalists more than we do over, uh, I don't think that's a word, but, um, so we, we tend to look at it and, and I'll use a, an example that comes to mind. We have adjacent to or in leaving our clients adjacent to or in our uh, EEO policy, anti-bullying policy. And I just want to throw out the concern with those is that bullying is such a subjective term that we have seen that overused and sort of just bombard the HR department with needless investigations where Supervisor is just doing their job. They may be a little tough and strict enforcing the policy. And we're getting anti bullying complaints, which then might, as per our policy and practice, require HR to into full investigation. But that bullying has nothing to do with race discrimination or gender discrimination or harassment. And so, otherwise, we would probably advise not to do an investigation and to open up that category. So, that's just one example of. I'm not saying everybody should take their anti bullying policy out, but I I am saying that that we should consider the ramifications of of those types of policies that aren't required by law. Okay. Um, Another point that I'd like to make, and, and this happens more often than I'd like to think, but is that we need to have a system for managing and retaining our employee acknowledgments of the handbook. Those acknowledgments are absolutely always become important to your defense and litigation because we use them in deposition mainly to prove that that employee was aware of that policy that they violated and which caused their discipline or termination. And so oftentimes we get into litigation and find missing acknowledgments. You know, obviously, the plaintiff's attorney is going to see that we didn't produce an annulment, um, and the plaintiff's going to get into a deposition and say, well, I never read that clause. I didn't know that existed. I didn't, I didn't know that we considered yelling at a supervisor, you know, a dischargeable offense. So they're fairly common. And what I suggest is that we don't have the people power to, to delegate that, that, you know, that that be reviewed and that it's really important because a lot of employers, especially right now, are updating their handbooks. And we need really new acknowledgements every time we're updated. A lot of you have that
2: electronically done, that makes it a lot easier to keep Okay. You
1: know, as far as maintaining handbooks and changing policies, um, I think there's no specific amount of time that we would recommend to say, you know, review every six months, or whatever. Um, they should probably be reviewed or at least considered annually uh, because of changes in law. Now, I will say this goes back to the point that NAFLA made the federal law that we deal with, the, the, the anti discrimination laws, the FMLA, the ADA, from a From a statute perspective, there's not been any major changes since 2009, arguably before that. So there's been no, I would say, material new legislation on the federal front. Um, But, and we all know this, the government agencies, depending on who's occupying the White House, whichever side, will change how they administer and interpret the law. So we've got the the Biden Department of Labor versus the Trump Department of Labor. We've got the Obama Department of Labor versus the Trump Department of Labor. Um, Those change and it very well could be that that when we change presidents and the agencies change, that that's a, a good time to talk to your lawyer and decide do we need to change any handbook policies? Because for instance, um, social media is a great example, right? Under the Obama administration, the National Labor Relations Board was allowed to stick their hands in social media uh, policies, of, of all things. In other words, the National Labor Relations Board, that which governs union employers, unionized employers and union organizing attempts, is now free to assume the power to Um, find you liable even though you're non-union because you have a social media policy that impacts how their employees communicate. That's a great example. So when those types of things happen, it's not the passage of a new federal employment law. It's a change in the presidency and therefore a change in the National Labor Relations Board or the Department of Labor or something that might require us to rethink our handbook policies. I always suggest we treat handbook policies as living documents. We we don't just review the language or even review the law, but as I suggested before, we review it in the context of our organizational structure and maybe changes to that organizational structure and how we feel about using or other managers who are not HR trained, using that handbook as a guideline for them to manage employees versus it being used just as a guideline for employees to understand sort of what the rules are. Um, so just to sort of sum up there, sum up all of that, I think at a minimum of, when there's a major change in the law, either state, the state of which you're in or federal, uh, it's a good time to review policies uh, when there's a change in your practices, policies, or procedures, and I mentioned one before, I'll give you a, this example again, and that is when when we were going through COVID, right? We almost all employers had to relax their attendance policies, and certainly their work from home policies if their service workers. Now we're changing back, but it's very difficult to change back. We've got. Fights in the manufacturing arena who had a 10-point attendance system. That is, if an employee hit 10 points within a year, they were discharged. Who during the labor shortage and COVID were allowing up to 50 points because they needed people to make the parts. Well, now we've got to rein that back in. Did they ever change their written policy to say you're allowed 50 points? No. Our written policy still now says 10, but the employees are thinking 50. And so We have to think about how do we need to amend the policy or do we just put the employees on notice? that The old policy applies again, beware. Um, Other times, like if if you're expanding into new states, um, be very aware of, of how those state laws treat employment issues. And even in new cities and counties, they may have ordinances, as Nathalie mentioned, that impact, you know, how you apply your policies. So if you're expanding into new areas, or even if you have employees working remotely, which we all do that we didn't have before, and they're living in a pro-employee state, California, Illinois, uh, Massachusetts, um, we could go on. Then we will need to adapt our policies to where that person lives and the laws before that person. Lives.
2: Um, any revision
1: to our handbook should state that it supersedes all prior handbooks because sometimes in litigation, we run into this problem where we didn't expressly state that we superseded the old handbooks. And so, as you saw in that case, there were three different sexual harassment policies the court let the plaintiff pick the one she wanted so we have to be careful on that <laughs> all right. that sort of wraps up that part i, I hope that makes sense uh we're, we're going to try to dig into a little more detail on some of these important points that we made by doing a question and answer session between mathel and i to try to draw that out and then i know that i notice we've got a couple of questions pending I'll we'll try to address those at the end. So you're up, NAFLA. Um, are there any issues regarding handbook policies as they relate to employers with employees who are residents of multiple states across the country? We've already hit on that, but if you can expand on that a little bit, please.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of, we've talked about updating, we've talked about the your handbooks, reviewing, updating your policies we've talked about the impact of, you know, ever-changing kind of laws as they apply in different states and different counties and different municipalities. Um, You know, it kind of requires a constant monitoring of the laws to make sure that we're compliant and, you know, evaluating how those are going to impact our operations and to what extent we're going to change um, the way we do business if it's going to change for particularly just those employees. Um, Or if it's going to change, you know, across the organization based on, um, you know, kind of how our operations look. Mainly, honestly, it kind of comes down to just proactive monitoring, understanding, um, you know, where we're operating, where our people are doing business and, um, you know, making sure that we are on top of whatever laws might apply. One of the ways we often do that is by sending emails um, to clients, just letting them know, this is what's happened in the last 30 days. This is what is coming up in the next 30 days. Um, just staying on top of those. And a lot of times those are things that are are publicized pretty regularly um, across different different forums.
1: Now if I could chip in here too, there's there's some really obscure employment laws in some in some various places. I ran into one one time where there's an employment law in Boston. Just Boston, only but. That makes it a violation for an employer to leave its doors open to employees on certain days. And I can't remember, but the kind of obscure one was might have been St. Patty's Day. Say. And one was some other day, I, holiday I'd never heard of before. So they were requiring employers to provide holidays on those days, essentially paid holidays. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the other areas, but it is, it's fair to say it's an extreme headache to keep up with all of the changes, if you have remote employees or offices in these areas. And it is, this is a new animal, right? Um, We always had certain state variations, California and so forth, law in act. I I don't know, what do they have? Probably 10 different leave laws now. Um, Everything from organ donor leave to, you know, pregnancy disability leave, and and the list goes on and on. But what we've seen in the last few years is that that they're really more states are jumping on that bandwagon, and they're sort of taking the authority away from the feds and applying their own more pro-employee laws. And more localities, uh, cities, counties, even in states you would think of pro-employer, um, I think Jacksonville, Florida's got its own ordinances that sort of supersede the federal law in some places. So. It it is difficult and we can, we're happy to help you sort of talk around how to, talk about how to to manage that situation. Okay, NAFLA, how does, how does, how does an employer determine which state law applies? Do, Do they look at the location where the company has its headquarters or the state where the employee resides or the state to which the employee reports if they're a fellow working remotely? How does that work?
0: Yeah, so this is an issue that really kind of came to light during COVID with a lot of, with the rise of the remote workforce, with people working from home, having a lot more flexibility in terms of where they perform their job duties. And, you know, the issue essentially is that it's kind of going to depend, unfortunately. We have states that will apply certain ordinances as soon as a certain amount of work is performed in that state. For example, California. Um, once you have performed, you know, 30 days of work in a year, there are certain employment benefits that that employee would be entitled to. Most states, it is by the residence. Um, so, if you have, you know, an employee who lives there then they will be subject to a lot of the employment um, types of benefits. And then there are a good number. I'd say the second most frequent is where the work is performed. Um, And we see that a lot kind of in the New England area where someone may live in New Jersey, work in New York, you know, different kinds of things like that, where it's where the work is performed. Most of the time, if we have an employee who is residing in a state, we need to at least be aware you know, of how those particular laws may impact uh, how we, you know, offer benefits, how we do, you know, tax implications, um, you know, in our policies and things like that.
1: This could be a a, a much bigger deal than, than what it seems like, because, um, you know, you, you might have sales reps, right, that are mobile through many states and who live in a particular state, but they might work in a state like California and it's supposed to put 30 hours in a year. We, we, we own the law. Um, so it can become litigation within litigation and very expensive uh, to fight. Um, but, but if you imagine like take um, two states sort of on the opposite end of the continuum right next to each other, and I'm going to pull Indiana and Illinois. Is, but Illinois is very pro-employer. Indiana is pretty pro-employer. So if you've got an employee those, that's crossing lines, you know, that's uh, living in one, working in another, it's a tricky issue. Um, but more importantly, as Nathana said, we've got we've got so many more remote employees now, and a lot of times it's going to go by where they, where they live, live, not where they were born. So yeah. we, we, we have, have to be aware, aware of that.
0: I think also something that we've seen come to light in the last couple of years are it we've had a case um, where an employee moved unbeknownst to the company. And, you know, a lot of times it doesn't matter that you didn't know the employee moved. So we're seeing a rise in kind of just a, a policy or provision that says, Hey, you need to let us know and keep your, you know, residents updated, things like that. Just because, you know, employees who are remote, who are traveling, who are relocating could impact, you know, And we could be liable for certain benefits and policies and employment practices, you know, without even realizing that they're there. Just the we didn't know they were there um, is not a defense to some of the things that will that will arise as a result of the employee, you know, operating, living, or working from there.
1: But if you have an employee that sneaks over the state line into California, good to be aware of that. Okay. In your experience, Nafla, what what policies are most likely to be impacted by state and local employment laws?
0: These are really going to be your leave policies, um, what type of leaves employees are entitled to, and what types of leaves are paid versus unpaid. So we have a lot of states that have, for example, victim leave, where if someone is a victim of a crime they are entitled to, you know, appear in court or to meet with prosecutors, police, whoever, you know, as a result of that victim. We have subpoena leave, and these are all kind of run pretty similar to jury leave, but if you're subpoenaed it to appear in court as a witness, um, absent being a defendant in court, then you're entitled to leave from work. We have leaves like that. We're starting to see a rise in the amount of expanded family leaves above and beyond the FMLA California. Um, It's just an easy example that comes to mind. There's the California Family um, Leave Act. And so we've got different types of leaves of absences that we need to be aware of. Organ donor leaves, um, you know, volunteer firefighter leaves, things like that, that, you know, um, all kinds of leaves that you would be surprised even exist. Then from there, we really need to look at are these paid or unpaid leave? So if we have a jury leave, most you know, voting leaves, for example, most employers have a voting leave policy in there. However, they do vary um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions require that the employee have three hours before work, their regular scheduled for the polls to be open or three hours after. Some are as little as two hours. Some require paid leave, some don't. Um, you know, so evaluating the leaves, as I mentioned. Another area that is absolutely ripe for differences are how we do our PTO. There are several states that require paid sick leave these days. And paid sick leave um, generally accrues at a given amount. So an hour for every 30 hours worked, an hour for every 40 hours worked, depending on the relevant um, legislation. A lot of company, a lot of these legislations will allow us to apply our generalized PTO policy as long as it meets those minimum thresholds. So as long as we're granting employees an hour for every 40 hours work, so of, you know, PTO that they can use for sick leave or to take care of a sick family member, then they will consider us compliant with those requirements. The issue that that creates then is when we have a PTO policy And it applies, you know, for our multi-state employers. And we have employees who are operating from an office or, you know, who live or in certain areas that have, you know, a more um, generous accrual than what we are offering PTO. That often is one of the areas that we need to look out for. The other area when it comes to PTO um, that creates an issue is there are some states now that consider PTO as earned wages. And those are things that cannot be forfeited. Um, They have to roll over or they have to be paid out. They can't, you know, a lot of companies like to say you have to use your PTO in the year that it accrues, or you will not be paid out the financial equivalent of your PTO at the time of your termination. And we are seeing more and more states that are saying once an employee earns that, that is considered wages. It cannot be taken away from the employee and it has to be paid out at termination so we're really starting to see more of a need to highly scrutinize these multi-state employers and their PTOs to make sure that if we're not carving out sick leave, if we're not, you know, if we're putting that all in that same bucket that we're at least compliant with the minimum requirements of the law. Um John, I think we're saying leaves and I would say, you know, you're sick, your paid leaves, your sick leaves
1: um I think that's the majority of what we're seeing right now that's new, other than those obscure. And again, I guess we're focusing on what you know states and localities. Um, so just to wrap all of that up for a multi-state employer, you know, who has, or not even a multi-state employer, but a employer with employees who reside in multiple states, from a big picture perspective, what are their options when it comes to a workable handbook? Do they do they include every new law that comes about within the handbook that goes to the general workforce, or do they have more of a, of a general handbook? If you could just explain that to folks, how we deal with that.
0: That's a really good question. And a lot of times it kind of goes back to a point you made earlier in the presentation. And, you know, to what degree, how does our HR team operate? Do we have, you know, HR teams that are across, you know, our footprint that are really well you know, knowledgeable in these things. And we can do a general handbook policy that has safety net language that says, you know, this is our policy unless otherwise required by applicable law. And that kind of little phrase at the end gives us some wiggle room to say, generally speaking, this applies. But if there is a law, an ordinance, something in your jurisdiction that would apply to you, then you get what the law says. And that's where we really kind of need a strong HR team that, it knows they're not kind of going by the handbook as the rule of thumb, they know the laws in the area, they know um, what they need to do above and beyond, they know the provisions of our general handbook that are changed, that are altered for specific employees in specific jurisdictions. If there's really no HR presence who kind of has those boots on the ground or that knowledge um, of that jurisdiction of that particular area then sometimes that really creates those legal risks where we have a manager, we have an HR supervisor, we have someone who's just going by what the handbook says, you know, they're not paying out PTO, for example. And then we're hit with a, for example, a um, wage ordinance that says we owe that person 10% for every day that we didn't pay out those wages. And it's amazing how fast those particular charges will just accumulate um, you know, punitive damages, penalties, and things like that. On the other hand, what we're able to do is we can create just kind of a general handbook that has our catch all policies that generally apply. And then what we have attached to that um, or sent out to the relevant employees, we have addendas that are applicable to employees in the state of Massachusetts. And we say, you know where the policies here differ from the policies in the handbook. These are the policies that will apply to you. For example, if you um, are in Boston, you get St. Patrick's Day off so that you know you're not blocking the street for the parade, um, or you get this amount of sick leave, or you get this amount of um, you know PTO. So, and we kind of really dive into the law and describe how it's going to impact that particular employment arrangement. So those are the two main options, having a very kind of generous lean handbook that says, you know, this is our policy, unless something else applies to you, or having that handbook and then actually attaching the very specific state local ordinances, um, policies, you know, driven to it through an addenda. So I think um, we have a couple other questions, John, I feel like I've done a lot of the talking recently. So if you don't mind, I will pitch them over to you. Um, Starting high level, what policies, if you had to identify the policies that are kind of the problem children policies for being ripe for litigation um, and exposing companies to litigation, what kind of policies should be kind of the policies we should be focusing on if that's a concern we have?
1: Sure, and I this is sort of a different um, analysis of what daphLA just did. it gets a little confusing. DaAF was talking about the types of policies that, as a multi-state employer you have to look at for change amongst counties, cities, whatever. It, this this list contains a lot of the same policies, but it's different in that we're we're now talking about what policies in your handbook are the most ripe for litigation. So well, the first one, And these aren't in any particular order that I have in my mind, are your PTO policies. And in particular, whether your policy addresses carryover for earned but unused PTO to the following year, and or whether it addresses the payout of earned but unused PTO at the time of separation. Those are big issues. I'm going to talk about those from a legal perspective here in a, in a little bit, but it is, in my opinion, very important that even in Georgia and Florida, that your PTO and your vacation quality policy expressly state whether you allow an employee to carry over unused vacation or PTO to the next year, and if so, in what percentage, and whether or not that employee is entitled to the value of earned but unused PTO at the time of separation. That can create a lawsuit in another state if we don't have that language to clearly spell it out. Now, going back to what NAFLA said, we have to be careful. In, in Georgia and a lot of the southern states, we can say exactly what we want. If we don't want them to have carryover, if we don't want them to, um, to earn at the time of separation, we can say so. But in a lot of states, you can't. A lot of localities you can't, so that has to be addressed by local law. Um sick leave policies are can be a triggering point for litigation. And really, in particular, whether they comply with local law. You know, we've all sort of morphed into this whole PTO type of situation that could be easier to administer. But then there's some states that require sick leave. So the question becomes. Can you just have a catch-all PTO or do you have to have a separate sick leave policy? And if you've been providing X number of days of earned PTO and you're gonna carve, you have to carve out sick leave, how are you gonna you know, accommodate that? Are, are you gonna take away from the PTO? It becomes kind of an involved question. I'd say at the top of my list, what we see the most in your traditional forms of employment litigation that creates problems are attendance policies. Not because they're poorly drafted, some of them are but more so because they're applied us And that's very understandable, especially in a big organization, right? You get good employees, bad employees, you got managers, sort of more on the front lines of the attendance policy you might let some people go and you know, apply more strictly with others. That's a really important aspect and one that we see often. Um, I mentioned before, leave policies in excess of FMLA or personal leave policies with either CAP with, with with specific amounts of time in them, you might. Have, the way I look at this is, you know, we defend these ADA cases, and a lot of them involve. Okay, what is a reasonable accommodation if the employee has exhausted all their FMLA and, and the doc says they need more leave? Well, the law doesn't provide us with a specific number, but if our policy says up to six months or six months, I can pretty much guarantee that the court's going to find that if you put that in your policy that's what they're going to consider to be a reasonable accommodation. So those have to be looked at with a level of scrutiny, as I mentioned before. Um, your traditional work rules uh, and, and progressive discipline. I think most all clients now have what I call outs for the progressive discipline in that we reserve the right to jump steps if the situation so required. Um, the problem with the list of work rules, is it sort of makes sense in the manufacturing world years ago, but I don't know that it makes as much sense in the service. Well, if you have 15 work rules, whatever you discharge that employee for was not in there, then there's going to be a presumption that it wasn't a work rule. So it's very difficult to um, design a list of rules that applies to every event that could happen in a workplace that leads to discharge. Um, Still, a lot of companies have work rules, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not uh, walk off the job, they'll still not refuse and supervisor's directive. Uh, but I, I think they're becoming a little more outdated. And again, I'm not saying we should eliminate ours, but I think it's it's a good thing to reconsider at this point. Do we need it? Do we not need it? Is it better not to have a specific work? Um, overly detailed investigation policies. Uh, I see these on occasion where you'll have a three-page Policy on how we will investigate a complaint by an employee, in my opinion. I mean, those can be great, right? But they can also hamstring us because I look at his employee investigations as living, uh, breathing, breathing animals, right? Each one of them changes. And, you know, you may you may just have to talk to the alleged culprit and the complaining party. You may need to talk to witnesses. You may not, but if we we specify all that out in they detailed policy. Our hands are kind of bound because then the plaintiff's attorney is arguing, well, you didn't follow this detail here. You, you got it right there in your policy. And that does not fare well for litigation. And the one sort of obscure one that I would mention is one I mentioned before, and that is a probationary employee policy. Those are more uh, manufacturing, I think, than a service industry. But we did run into an issue with this, and that's why it always comes Top of my head, um, if you're going to have a probationary policy, you know you're a probationary employee player. for ninety days, and then we'll review you. Then it it needs to specify what that means, right? So in this particular case, we had one, uh, but but it didn't say anything about what that means. And the plaintiff's attorney was arguing, and I thought making some impact the idea that hey, your probationary employee does not say that your progressive discipline policy does not apply to probationary right. employees. Well, it should, right? There's got to be a ramification to violating a, a rule for a probationary employee, and they don't get the same benefits that other employees get. So those need to be spelled out. That's my long-winded answer to your short question.
0: Okay, John, we have, uh, we have several more questions, um, just prefacing that, and we're running out of time, so quickly, if you don't mind, sorry. Um, handbooks aren't generally considered contracts, but outside, is it really kind of those same ones that could be considered contracts? What policies in a handbook are courts most likely to take out and deem to be contractual obligations by the company?
1: Okay, this goes beyond what we talked about wrongful discharge. It, this this is pretty much in every state, and I'll include Georgia on this one, your, your PTA, PTO vacation policies are considered contractually binding As they go to whether or not an employee can be paid out at separation for unused or whether an employee can carry over in one year to the next. So, if you don't wanna do that, you need to state so as such a policy. The other other provisions and some handbooks that can be considered contractual are bonus and compensation policies. Um, I tend to recommend that we keep those out of the handbook. And if they are in the handbook, just know that even ports in Georgia are fair to those to be contracted.
0: Are there other policies? We've talked a lot about handbooks, but are there other policies that really should be standalone documents and you know brought out from the handbook in addition to those that we've already mentioned?
1: Yeah, if you're relying on your handbook policy for non-compete, especially and even confidentiality, confidential information, it is. Far, far better from a legal perspective to put that in a standalone agreement signed by the employee, because almost I'd say the vast majority of jurisdictions will not enforce a non-competite handbook and oftentimes not a confidentiality provision. So do it's best not to rely on that. Um I I prefer that IT and social media policies be separate and signed documents just because they're oftentimes very detailed they're likely, it can be complicated, and they're very important. And I, I, I just see uh, a good reason to have those separate. Some employers like to keep their anti-harassment policies separate, anti-discrimination policy separate. I see the point, you know, sort of emphasizes the importance of them, but it's not necessary.
0: Uh, okay, we had a quick comment about the new pregnancy accommodation law. And I believe that was in regards to when you said we haven't really seen a lot of federal law changes. So there is a new pregnancy accommodation um, law on a federal level. In my opinion, it applies to employers with 15 or more employees. But in my opinion, it just, you know, really doesn't kind of change what employers were required to do before. Um, it is something that if you have not been accommodating under the ADA or anything else, you know, pregnancy related, you um, disability, short-term types of things, um, then that is something now that employers will need to accommodate. John, do you have anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, this just happened recently, and I, and frankly, I I have not looked at the law to determine whether the pregnancy accommodation law requires us to have a handbook policy on that law, but we did receive uh, a communication from the EEOC on a pending charge where they said your handbook does not, does not have, it does not mention that law. So, regardless of whether it's required by law, I think the EEOC is going to take the position that we need to include it. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: John, you mentioned uh, you gave an example about getting rid of the workplace bull- bullying policy, but I think you cut out a little bit after that. And I think your advice was um you don't recommend getting rid of the workplace bullying policy, but you do recommend essentially fly specking it to make sure. Um, you know that it's exactly what the organization wants. Do you mind reiterating the point you made with regard to
1: um, that? Sure. And I, I think you captured it correctly. I, I'm not if 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 we feel like if you feel like after analysis and anti-bullying policy is important to your organization, it's certainly not unlawful to have one. But I it also is not required by any law. And it it I, I think what I'm suggesting is that it needs to be looked at in the context of your organization and that are we going to invite complaints from such an objective term, right? Or such a subjective term, bullying, that are we, gonna, are we gonna invite complaints that are required to be investigated, that take up a lot of HR's time and doing so, and create, I think, which could create more ill will, right, through the investigation than if we didn't have the policy, first place. It's just a point for consideration, I'm not, um, suggesting you have to label
0: Okay. Another question um, there, we have one attendee who is a large company and they update their policies on a regular basis. Um, the policies are available online but they don't update the handbook as often. How often do they need to get their employees to sign for that updated handbook? I'll let you take it because
1: I think- I think if I understand the question, basically, we're updating our handbook online. You can
0: help me on. Uh I th- Yeah, I think they're updating the policies online, but the policies, if I understand, and feel free to correct us, um, the policies aren't always, are they reflected in the handbook? I think it's is kind of a, it depends situation, John. So correct me. If the policies are being, made available online and their policies like, for example, compensation, uh, commissions, arrangements, things like that. I think it depends on what the policy is and how how much we would want to enforce it in a court of law. If it's something like a compensation or a non-compete or a confidentiality, we would likely want the employee to re-execute the acknowledgement for that um, when that policy is set out. Now, if it's something that is not, you know... I don't know. We've updated our, I don't know, John, if you have a quick example, um, you know, our lunch break policy or something. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe not as often, but I, I think it is a good idea every time an employee handbook is updated to go ahead and get that acknowledgement re you know, redone. Yeah,
1: or you may just because because it's sort of a mixture of issues here, you may just want to do a catch-all like recite every year or every six months or every year and a half. Um, I'm not an IT expert, but I think with electronic handbooks, a lot of people have a date stamp on when it was read by a particular employee. That's an easy way to keep up with it. We don't have to have a full-blown acknowledgement. We just need to know that they've committed, that they've received it and they've committed that they've read it.
0: Another another guest um, stated that they recommend just getting it signed annually. Um, I think it's really just going to depend, frankly, on, on what the policies are and, and what we're what we're doing and what we're changing. Um, we have another question about companies with full policy manuals also having handbooks, which are more generic versions of the policy manual. So we we've had this discussion with several clients where we have a handbook, but then we have a separate kind of operating policy manual that gets into more detail. For example, we have a handbook that says, we'll investigate your complaints. Um, You know, if you lodge a complaint of discrimination or a violation of our anti discrimination policy or something like that. But then we have an operating manual that kind of further outlines more of the nitty gritty of that. That can be a double edged sword um, in that, you know, there's always the possibility that that could be used against us, that that could come into um, litigation to show that we went Outside of our practices or our policies, kind of like that litigation for Texas Roadhouse that I mentioned, the case that we uh, found, I you know I think there's there's been discussions about can we have that be kind of a, a confidential legal memo um, to try to protect that, saying you know this is a memo of how an attorney would a work product type of thing, um, you know it's gonna you can definitely have that second policy kind of practice book, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be insulated. Um, from being, you know, discoverable or used against you in litigation the same way that your handbook would. Um, John, I'm sure you have something you want to add there.
1: No, I I agree with you. Uh,
0: Lastly, we have a question about, can we require employees to provide their current address where they are living? Um, This particular guest said that they're having, they found that some employees don't want their current address listed, which has caused issues when sending information to employees. John?
1: Yes, I, I know of no law, unless there's some pure state law that we're, we're not privy to, I know of no law that, that, that prevents you from requiring your employees to provide them with a current address. And, and and most policies, or at least practices I'm aware of, do require that. And I mean, just to give a really quick example, we had a situation where an employee moved to California without telling us, and all of a sudden California law um, you know, uh applied and we were stuck with it. So I think it's a very good idea not only to have that policy but also to enforce
0: it. Yeah, I can't imagine. I'm I'm also not familiar with any laws that would require that we or that would prohibit us from doing that especially when outside of the employment context. I mean there are tax implications and all for having employees in certain states. Sometimes we have to register as a business doing business there depending on things. So it just it would surprise me if there was something out there frankly. Um Last question, I believe, unless something comes in, please provide guidance on employment law posters in a remote work environment. So generally speaking, and actually California in the last time is flying right now, I want to say in the last six months, but um, in my mind, I think it's still 2021. So take that with a grain of salt. Actually said that we could email these out. There's a lot of laws say that we have to post this in a place where it is easily accessible, and employees will see it. So like a break room, um, you know, somewhere. And then when COVID came around, we kind of had an issue of, well, how do we provide the mandatory poster requirement or how do we meet those mandatory poster requirements? Like I said, California recently said that email is an acceptable way. Um, Intranet is generally an acceptable way. There's, you know, a lot of places that I don't think, as long as we're really trying, the laws that I've found, as long as we're really trying to post it, in a place where employees may come, if there is a physical environment somewhere that they could report to monthly, whatever, definitely continue to post it there. Also provide it on any internet. Um, And then, you know, as a last case, we can always kind of email it to employees uh, and make it available through there. John, anything you want to add in there?
1: No, I have not seen a lot of challenges on that front. I think it's a great question, but I, I, I do think that if we're in good faith posting it on our and board, board and so forth, then we probably pass the good faith test. You never know with the EEOC, then they may pick that apart. So, you know, we can usually rectify those issues pretty easily. Uh, but, but I would say, you know, if, if there's an in front of that sort of company, then you may want to find a way to try to stand over them. Wouldn't have hurt. Yeah.
0: Okay. I think that, um, There are no more remaining questions. We got through those. Um, I will say thank you everyone for attending. Uh, It's been a pleasure this morning. Thank you for all the really thoughtful, good questions. John and I are always available um, via email or phone if there's anything that we weren't able to address in this presentation, but thank you again. John, I'll let you.
1: I just want to thank everybody for for joining us and the great questions and thank you, Kathleen. Thanks. Happy Friday.